So welcome to episode three of the Real Roadmap podcast. My name is Liam Rose and today I've got a very special guest with me. Uh, his name's Steve Pullen. He's a family friend of mine and we've known each other for a very, very long time since we were, since I was a child actually. Um, and Steve has managed to uh, build a business over the years and I've watched him do it as a, as a young man uh, and the days of him turning up in super sports cars to the house were fond memories to me. And uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to interview Steve today to talk about how he managed to bring, build a business that was in the eight figures. Um, so welcome, Steve. How are you? Very well. Good morning, How's Mr. It? Rose. Thank you. Feeling all right? I'm all right, thank you. Good. And you? Yes, I'm doing all right. I'm quite excited because whenever we get on the phone, we seem to end up having a really in-depth and deep conversation. Or if we go for a coffee, it's never just a 10-minute coffee. We cover all ranges of uh, discussion, such as how you've lost so much weight. I mean, you've, 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 you know, we talk about this quite often. You've, you've really got yourself into some great shape. How have you managed that? You want me to start there? <laughs> let's start. There. Start the end. Start at the end. I mean, yeah, let's it's not. Just... It's not really. It's not really the end for me because it's ironically it probably underpins a lot of this this interview this sure. this, this conversation because mm. it's part of part of my psyche, part of my 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 makeup um, yeah. as to how I lost weight, part of my focus. Sure, um, and dare I say it, my. OCD behavior. Yeah, yeah. So if we're starting at the end, I, you know, I appreciate your comments, but, you know, you need to take a bit of credit for that as well because, you know, you helped me out, you know, midway through sure. my little weight loss journey. But mm. when I finally retired on the 1st of December 2019, sure. Um, it was prior to COVID. We didn't know anything about COVID. Um, and I'd planned to do a male Shirley Valentine and travel the world, having, having finally retired and sold the business in 2016. Um, COVID hit, and it, sad as it is, because I know a lot of people lost their lives through COVID, but it was probably health-wise the best thing that ever happened to me. Sure. Because it allowed me, I couldn't travel, um, I couldn't do what my little bucket list was, so um, I decided that I would embark on getting fit and losing weight. And at the time, if we're going to put numbers to it, December the 1st, 2019, I probably was about 14 stone. Um, not massively overweight, but certainly very, very unhealthy. Sure. You know, because of a, a frenetic and frantic business lifestyle and mm. not eating properly and focusing on what was going in my mouth <laughs> you know and not doing any exercise sure um so my ocd ocd nature was i don't just want to go on a diet you know i want to understand about calories and you know restrictive diets and calorie deficit and mm. what it actually does to my body and mm. so i i hooked in with somebody online um and did some did some self soul searching on on how to lose weight and sure. uh, I didn't uh, naively and I'm embarrassed to say this I didn't even understand calories I didn't understand macros and I think fortunately because of my discipline 
because obviously through years of, of abusing my body and eating bad stuff, nothing happened. You know, I was, I was, mm. I was eating less. I was doing some mild exercise and nothing at all happened for three or four months, but it doesn't really, that doesn't deter me because of my focus and my sure. dedication, which yeah, yeah. is really what's underpinned my business life, which is, I know what this podcast is all about. Sure. Um, then the weight started coming off. Then I started looking at, okay, I don't just want to lose weight because I don't want to lose muscle. I then want to build muscle. Mm. That's when I started talking to you. Um, and that's when you started taking me training, which damn near killed me. <laughs> um, if nothing else, at, you know, 5.30 in the morning, you know, nearly killed me. And I thought I was going to a real nice little posh gym. Yeah. And I was going to a hardcore. Rough and ready. <laughs> rough and ready, yeah. like boxing gym. And the great thing with going with you is you didn't allow me to shirk. You forced me to do things. You forced me to, to try to build muscle. Yeah. And so I guess my journey went from 14 to 11 and a half stone. Intention wasn't to get that low. You know, and I, I certainly don't want to go any lower, mm. but it's self-fulfilling because you shouldn't, you know, I'm as vain, you know, I'm a vain person, mm -hmm. you know, and I enjoy looking in the mirror at a 59 year old who is fitter than I've ever been. And I now exercise every day. I'm not, I'm not crazy about eating you know, a lettuce leaf and half a tomato. I don't do it. You know, <laughs> yeah, my body's yeah. used to it now. Yeah. And corny as it sounds, it talks to me, mm. you know. So if I go out with the boys and have a 4,000 calorie curry and five pints of Guinness, the next day my body says, don't do that again. Mm. You know, so I've got into that rhythm now. And um, yeah, so so a strange way to start at well, the it, end of my journey, but it but it does form part of my my focus and my dedication. Of course. Well, I, I suppose the reason I ask, I always I always bring up things like this because initial experience of someone, you know, when you bump into people from time not spent with them, and you have lost a dramatic amount of weight, everyone's like, "Wow, how did you do it?" Right, and. My experience of knowing you for so long, when I bump into you and I see you in this condition now, I know how hard that is to do. And you've done it at 59 years old, which most people tend to at 40, draw the line in the sand and say, I'm not doing that anymore. It's not a focus for me. I just want to be happy and comfortable. And what you've chosen to do through that level of self-evaluation, which a lot of people struggle with, you've decided I'm going to learn this and I'm going to adhere to it. And the very simple fact is, as you mentioned, the only things you did was you started eating less and doing a bit of exercise. And in three or four months, nothing really happened. But over time, the results came. And if I tie my experience to anything, is it's a simple process. It's doing the process that is the hard thing. If you write it on a piece of paper, what well, you have to get up and go to the gym. If you don't know what you're doing, just start moving weights around. Do eight different machines and do three sets on each and try and get to around 12 reps on each machine. That's quite a simple metric to do if you're just thinking about doing exercise. <clears throat> then for food, it's like inherently when you're ordering a Burger King 
or you're ordering McDonald's or you go and order a salad from Waitrose, yeah, when you're out at a service station, you inherently know which the right choice is and which isn't. We just choose to not do it. And what I admire in your strength of doing it at your age is that it's like the, the, the capacity for the number to dictate who you are doesn't exist. I'm 59. That doesn't matter. I will do this. Yeah. It, 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 again, it's, it sounds very sanctimonious, but it is hard work. Yeah. You know, because again, as you get older, your metabolism slows down. Sure. So you've got to force your metabolism up. Yeah. And it really is a fairly, I just took it to extremes by wanting to understand about calories and macros sure. and what it was doing in my body. But it's quite simple. It's move more, eat less, uh, but do it regularly. Yeah. But also, and I'm sure we'll touch on this, in order to achieve things, you still need mentors. I had mentors in my business life. I probably didn't identify them at the start. It's only when you look back on reflection that, oh my God, that person was a mentor. Mm. And I don't want to blow smoke up your ass, Liam, but you were also a mentor when it came to that because seeing, and I'm sure you won't mind me saying this, no. you know, you've gone through, you know, ups and downs with your body. You know, you've mm -hmm. been a bit of a fat bugger occasionally yeah. and then you've looked in the mirror, not enjoyed what you've seen, mm -hmm. but your focus and your drive to then transform your body mm. into beach body status, mm. you know? So that is, that is a motivation and it is, okay, mentor is a bit of a strong word, but you were certainly my mentor going through the gym sessions that we did, you know? And then once you taught me about that, I then started doing it on my own. So everybody needs a mentor. They need somebody to look up to. Mm. I've had them in my business career yeah. and in my non-business career, sure. as you've started this with my weight loss, yeah. You were one of those sure. to me, you know, I, appreciate I, I, that. I never wanted, I never wanted to look like you because I knew that I never could, you know, it wasn't, but it also wasn't my goal. It wasn't my goal to have a six pack, yeah. you know, an eight pack or whatever. My goal was to get fit, yeah. lose weight and build muscle. And I looked to you to help me to do that. And you did. Well, credibility comes from the external experience of the things that you've done. Like when you go into a gym and you see a PT and they're not in shape themselves, they cater to a certain audience, right? But if you have a specific goal where it is to lose weight, if you're going up to somebody that is in the, in the weight they, can cho they choose, they're in the physical condition that they choose, that's credibility. And then if I can articulately explain that to you in a way where you're, you're fantastic to work with because you listened and I didn't do great deals of like diet plans and working with you and all that sort of stuff. We trained in the gym and I showed you posture, <coughs> technique, timing, positioning, you know, what to look for, what to do. And you already had a good framework there. So what most people tend to do is when they come to losing weight, they actually just want um, the very shortest version of that. Because yeah. people are lazy and that's not inherent to their character. We don't, the word lazy doesn't necessarily have to be dialed down to an individual. It's a characteristic of behavior of human beings. It just happens because we don't want to do things that are difficult. That is our default mode setting. So when we overcome ourselves, which is ultimately what we do, 
Because if we're looking at it, all I've got to do is not put shit food in my mouth for 10 weeks. And I've got to go to the gym five times a week for 10 weeks. It's 50 goes, there's 50 trips to the gym. Yeah, that's, if you have four meals a day, I'm not going to attempt to do the maths on it, but it's not a lot of effort and time. What we do is negotiate with ourselves too quickly. Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. Rather than going yeah. in the direction of. It's method. Different, yeah. You know, you have to have a method. And, yeah. and, and again, you know, there, there are similarities between, between what I've gone through in, 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 in my, in my body transformation, if that's the sure. right expression yeah. and business, there's method. You know, you have to have method. You yeah. helped me with that method. Yeah. You know, my final, my final challenge and probably, you know, for anybody that's, that's, um, uh, that's got an addiction, yeah. you know, and I had an addiction since I was 18, which was smoking, mm-hmm. you know, and so, so the, the weight loss and the getting fit was part of me then going into my final mode of giving up smoking. Mm. So I finally gave up smoking nearly two years ago. Amazing. Um, it, corny as it sounds, it's probably one of my biggest achievements. You know, in really? giving, it really is by giving up smoking. Right. I, feel, I feel super excited that I've done it. Yeah, I, I vape, you know, and I have my own my own opinions. I'm a very opinionated guy. I have my own opinions on vape. Uh, I'm not saying that vaping is good for you. It's certainly not good for young kids, but as a method to give up smoking, it is a brilliant thing. You know, I don't want to move into, into the whys and wherefores of vaping. So vaping, sorry, giving up smoking was my last thing to do. And I, and I credit that, and I'm certainly not going to embarrass her by giving a name out on this podcast, but I credit that to, uh, to my ex-girlfriend who didn't smoke, never smoked. She was massively into her fitness and I just didn't want her to see me smoking. You know, we were in a really committed relationship and I realized the smell, the horribleness about smoking. So Although she doesn't realise it, she was the encouragement for me to give up smoking. So we all need some encouragement. You gave me the encouragement, you know, on the fitness. She gave me some passive encouragement to stop smoking. But it's those little moments in our lives that we, we, we sort of, we wait for. The moment where we go, oh, this is the time that I'm going to try this now. This is the time that I'm going to make that change. This is the time that I'm going to move my life in the direction I want it to be. And it can be something as simple as stopping smoking. Now, I don't agree with vaping um, because I've done it. I've vaped for a long time, but then I found it so difficult to stop. Mm. But I've smoked for a long time. So as you said, as a method to go from polluting my lungs with smoke, which is awful, with tar and all of the horrible chemicals in it, to then... uh, Refrain from doing that as shifting to something better. It's like drinking Coke and then going to Diet Coke to then get onto water. Sure. Rather than taking the drastic step of going from one to the other. First, it's reduced the addiction to the sugar. Then it's the, 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 the addiction to the flavor and then it's gone. Do you know what I mean? So you, this, the, that's part of the process. And now I, I've stopped. I've stopped everything. And one day um, <clears throat> it just happened. I was just like, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. 
And it was one thing I heard on a podcast. It was something that um, a very controversial chap said, Andrew Tate. He said, like, people are walking around and they're smoking batteries. Like, what are we... We've gone from smoking to smoking batteries. And me thinking about it like that, like, I am just walking around. Like, and if I can't find it, I'm like, where is it? You know what I mean? The, the volume of nicotine in it is so intense um, that it... When I, when I stopped, the audible difference in my, 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 um, my anxious nature was so different. Like it was gone because I'm not stimulating my body on a chemical level over and over and over again from smoking or like, you know, my addiction, my past, you know, I've, I suffered with addiction, alcoholism, food, like every type of addiction that I could possibly have had, I've had it. And I've dealt with it over the course of like a 10 year period. And to get to the point now where I don't have any external addictions to anything. Now I'm at the stage where I'm working on my behaviors. So we get rid of the stuff on the outside and then we work on our behaviors, which is the internal stuff, the trauma, the difficulty. And again, for me, getting to the position I'm in right now, I've had to go through hell. And I think that's what being an entrepreneur for me is about it's about deciding to take the harder path and yep. a lot of the decisions we make aren't necessarily the, the 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 conscious decision to take the harder path i don't think every day i'm going to do something more difficult than everybody else it's just inherent in who i am i couldn't deal with how i felt i drank and dr- take took drugs every single day i couldn't handle how i felt I, I drank and took drugs every single day for years on end then I stopped and then I couldn't cope with how I felt. Then I ate and then I changed that and then I got in shape. And then I, when I didn't get the result that I needed from being in shape, which was external validation, I needed love, I needed attention. And the getting in shape didn't do that for me. And then I was on this, again, it was another destructive path of like, what the fuck is wrong with me? And I finally realized I have to learn to like who I am and accept who I am and stop trying to hold myself to these, these standards that don't exist for most. Um, and that's what's led me to this moment now where I'm actually building a business and I give less of a, a fuck what the outside world thinks. I'm just going to pursue what I feel is the most authentic to me. Um, and that's kind of where I think we need to sort of edge into a little bit about your story because, um, the definition of, of an entrepreneur is their path from being an employee to being a business owner. Sure. And your path, and the reason I was so excited to get you on is that you went from A and you exited B and you now have that life that you, we all fight for. If we're an entrepreneur. Well, every day is a Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. (laughs) But that's what I want to get to, you know. I want to be able to say I'm retiring my kids are getting this. My life looks like that. I have no limits or boundaries on what I do. I can still flutter in investments and do things. But I also, I don't have to do anything. And I don't have to work. The most important thing is I don't want to have to worry about money. That's my goal. And the reason I have this podcast is because I want to learn from those that have done it or doing it. My business partner, he was on the first episode. He's just made an exit himself. He's built his business out, you know, and the reason he wants to be in business with me because he sees me and him. I understand that. Yeah. And, and, and I understand, you know, when you, when you asked me to do this, you know, I did it 
because I've been a, a friend of yours, like you say, mm. since you were a, a little kid. Tiny kid. You yeah. know, and that's because I'm such a close friend of, of your mum and dad. Yeah. You know, and if I thought that I could help your career path, albeit this is very alien for me. Yeah. Because you're a very private person. I am a private person. Um, A a lot of people, a lot of people confuse privacy with secrecy, you know, and I'm not a secret person. I'm just a private person. Yeah. And one of the reasons I'm private is because throughout my business career, I've always felt that for other people, um, my story would be boring. Mm. You know, I've never, I've never seen my story some exciting story. What I did for a living, I didn't work in a, in a flash, lovely, sexy industry. Mm. You know, I, I worked and thrived in a very commoditized industry, you know, and I never felt that my story would be interesting, you know? So it's made me think, you know, when you asked me to do it, you know, it's made me, I won't go into it, but prior to coming on this podcast, I said to you that you know, I dug out lots of files and papers from back in the day, you know, because I've not revisited them, mm. you know, because I've never felt it that interesting. I'm now quite interested that I've actually started reading about my own career. <laughs> yeah. oh, actually, it was quite interesting. But the, back then, right, what you did was what you did, right? Yeah. And here and now what you do has to be glamorized. It has to go out in the world. What I do for a living, you know, if you're a PT, it's all over social media. If you're a cast, like everything that everybody does to a degree is out in the in the social terrain and everybody's well, fighting diff- for that profile. It's a different world. Different world. But what you came up in and the world that you came up in was a different world. Yeah. But the world that you've come up in, you've done it arguably in the harder, harder time before social media, before building an audience, before you could go on LinkedIn and fucking find someone, before you could do any of those things, you've had to do and yep. be resourceful. And uh, to say it lightly, one of the things that I found so impressive with you is that your client base for the product that you sold. So you might like, if you can tell us in a sec what you manufactured and if you're able to some of your clients, because you had some really big high street brands. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy to tell you all yeah, of that. Go, let's go. So how did you first, let's, let's start with the industry you're in and then how did you get into it, et cetera. And then, yeah, you go. Uh, okay. Um, I'll, I'll skirt over some of the early days because the, the early days just, just form the, the springboard, if you like. How did you get into, because it was sales you started off in, isn't it? I, and still am. How I, did you I, get I still, into that? I still see myself mm. as a salesman. And I think anybody that is in business at the highest level of business needs to be a salesman. It's competent. You know, it's competent. It, um, they, they need to have lots yeah. of other attributes as well. But mine was always underpinned by being a salesman. So I, I, I effectively started by um, when I finished college, finished doing my A-levels, I, I answered an advert in a newspaper to become a salesman for a packaging company in Nottingham. Not, not a bloody clue. Not a clue about, about the packaging industry. But what hooked me in was um, there was a company car, <laughs> you know, and I was 18, mm. you know, and I was skint, you know, and I, I went for it because it was a company car. And, and 
I was interviewed um, and I got the job and I got a um, pale blue colour of this jacket. <laughs> yeah. Coincidence. Yeah. 1.3 Ford Escort. You know, for me... 18, that's a proper that was, car. That was a Ferrari. Right. You know, I was 18. It was brand new. You know, a brand new Ford Escort. And... <laughs> And I worked for for a firm in Nottingham, um, selling effectively plastic trays for the food industry. That's that's my career, plastic trays for the food industry. Not very glamorous. Mm. It's thermoforming is is the correct terminology. Um, So you're effectively heating, that's twice I've used effectively in the same sentence. (laughs) If you can edit that, please. (laughs) Make me look a little bit better. Um, So you heat plastic, you form it into a shape and you sell it to a food manufacturer. Mm -hmm. That's it. So, so the, 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 the common, the common packs that you would see now in all the UK retailers are plastic packs for salads, for convenience foods, you know, meats and stuff like that. Like yeah, the, that the trays was, that you, you get for meat and that, stuff. That was the genre. Now that was what it was. Yeah. And I worked there for four years mm-hmm. and loved it. You know, I was 19. Um, my boss was a great boss. He was a very inclusive boss. Um, he was an educator. Um, and I think... I've tried to, I've tried to, for this podcast, I've tried to, to understand what then made me want to go on my own. And I think I probably have a, a better understanding of, of, of my own psyche. So what basically happened was as a salesman selling plastic trays, you got a lead, you went into a customer and they, you designed a tray for them. We had a design department and they gave a volume and you had it quoted. So we had an estimating department. I was just some young boy salesman with me pale blue board escort, you know, and suddenly this guy, who I still remember his name, um, gave me a bit of paper and said, that tray that you've asked to quote is £24 a thousand. You go into the customer and you tell them £24 a thousand. Well, for me, that wasn't good enough. And, and this is where my inquisitiveness comes in. I'm working for a company that probably employed 30 people, 15 huge machines in a factory, cars in the car park, raw materials coming in, lorries. And I'm thinking, how did that guy get £24 a thousand, you know, for that tray out of all of this infrastructure that I'm working in? So I started asking questions. Wow. And that's, that's where it started. So how on earth do you get to £24 a thousand? He said, well, you know, basically what happens is the fixed costs of the factory are this. Our budget is so many millions. This tray is 20,000 units a week. 
Therefore, you filter it down and we arrive at a profit margin. We're looking to make about 4% net profit, a gross margin of 28%. And that's what you get, £24 a thousand. I hadn't got a clue what he was talking about. Mm. But over the coming weeks, I started honing my trade, as it were, and started being nosy and understanding how the estimating department worked, how on earth from an inquiry to put a couple of bits of fish into a plastic tray to sell to Marks and Spencers, getting £24. I started getting an understanding of how he got to £24 a thousand. Then every morning there was a production meeting, you know, and the production director sat in front of the production board and there were all these tickets on there and the customer wanted it on such and such a day. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, how does he plan the factory? How does he get all of these orders in Mm. and spit out, you know? So I genuinely started being nosy and finding out how on earth this guy planned to run a factory. And then, but the transport company, we've only got, five lorries but we've got 400 customers that have weekly deliveries how does the transport manager you know put all of these orders together Mm. load the lorries and deliver them all on such and such and I started this wasn't all in a week (laughs) you know this was over a period of time I was just a naturally nosy person I remember my parents saying to me that I was like that as a kid Mm. you know my my mum told me once that for a, for a Christmas present, I was given a Mickey Mouse alarm clock. Um, and a day later, it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work was because I wanted to find out how it worked. So I actually dismantled the thing as a kid to see how it worked. And wow. then I couldn't put the bloody thing back together. So I guess from an early stage, I was just a nosy kid. That's an organic trait that you can assign to... A, a lifetime of inquisitiveness. It is. Which and is an inherent trait. It is. So I think... Do you I remember think, the first thing that you, you had that with, or is that, that clock the first thing that you had that with? Do you remember the... Sound, it sounds crazy, but yeah, I think it was. And, yeah. you know, and this isn't... A, this I haven't created this story to, to fatten up your podcast. This is This is where I think I was slowly honing my trade by by um, honing is the wrong word, suddenly creating Mm. my skill levels that actually from a junior salesperson at a plastic packaging company in Nottingham, within three years, I had quite a good understanding on how the factory worked. It wasn't my job. I was probably a pain in the arse. Yeah. You know, but I wanted to understand. It wasn't good enough for me to go into the customer with £24 a thousand. How many do you want? Mm. I I needed to know how we got to that. I needed to know how the factory then produced it, delivered it, organised the raw material. Then, four years on, I get a phone call from a headhunting company. Um... And I was headhunted to become sales manager of one of this, what the company in Nottingham, uh, their biggest competitor, who were based down in South Wales. Um, but interestingly, they were a public limited company. They were floated on the UK Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. 
and their chairman um, operated out of his offices in Baker Street in London and a sales manager. So I left the company in Nottingham and became sales manager for this company in South Wales. Mm. King Kong, as far as I was concerned, I was what, 23, 24. Um, and I was sales manager of a 10 million turnover packaging company um, who happened to be floated on the UK Stock Exchange. Um, I then wangled my way from, I didn't like driving to South Wales every day and I wasn't prepared to move. So I wangled my way to actually working um, with the chairman in his office in Baker Street in London. Listening to his conversation, I'm still nosy. This hasn't stopped. You know, this, uh, I'm, I'm just starting. Amazing. Nosy. Started listening, started understanding what a market maker was in selling shares, you know, creating share value, you know. So this guy who was the chairman of the packaging company, he probably didn't even know what a plastic tray looked like, uh, but that wasn't his job. He ran the finances of the business. You know, he spoke to the market makers in the stock exchange. And I started getting interested in that. So I started being nosy on how business really worked, not just selling trays, how a business really, really worked. And my nosiness stood me in good stead. And he took me under his wing. He lives in Monaco now. Mm. Um, Funny that, isn't it? Yeah. And I still contact him. You know, he's an old man, you know. So you'd see him as kind of like a mentor. Um, I didn't see him as a mentor until after the fact. Sure. Yeah. You don't, you don't go in and go, oh, this guy's a mentor for me. You go in and go, like, for me. My biggest, my, my biggest mentor, my biggest mentor was the sales director of the first company in Nottingham. Right. He, he was my biggest mentor. And I recognised that, you know, and I learned a lot from him. And corny as it sounds, there are, certain, there are certain things that stick in your mind during your career. And I remember, I remember the day I resigned, you know, despite it goes, it goes back so long ago. I remember the day, I remember walking into his office. I don't mind naming him. His name was Tony. I won't give his surname. He's still around and we still have the odd contact. And I remember walking into his office and I'd thought, I'd, I was still young. I'd, I know I'd just been poached to be you know, a sales manager, but I was still naive. I was, I was rubbish. I was useless. I thought I was great, but I, you know, I was, I was useless really. Um, but I thought long and hard what I was going to say, because I was nervous about resigning because I, I did recognize him as a mentor, mm. even at that stage. So I remember exactly what I said. And I remember what exactly what he said when I went into his office and I said, Tony, I just want to say that you've taught me everything I know Thank you very much. And quick as a flash, the bastard said to me, don't forget, I've not taught you everything I know. <laughs> Brilliant. And that's still, and I'm, and I'm sure I've probably used it in my career. I'm sure I have. I'm sure I've plagiarised it and mm. used it. Wow. But that's what he said to me. Arrogant that, it, that, that he was. But truthful. But truthful. Sure. So I then, so, so yes, the, the South, South Wales company working from their offices in, in Baker Street, the, the bolt-ons to that was, that's when I got to know London. 
And I did a bit of socialising in London. So I really sort of came of age. You know, not only was I working for a PLC business as just a sales manager, you know, that's, that's all it was. It sounds like a glorified title, but I was really learning from the chairman, you know, and learning about business. Did you go out often with the chairman? Yep. So, and this is something I'll touch on because I think it's interesting, right? Is networking is seen as this thing that we shouldn't do, this thing that isn't done, this thing that, you know, it's old, it's antiquated. But for me, my business partner, I met him in a networking meeting and we just get on, right? And any other networking that I've ever done has been as a result of me being around people, being myself, and then getting to know those people. And then at some point it's like, oh, we can maybe do some work together and maybe we can do some business together. And I suppose when you're with a chairman of a PLC, the cohorts of people he's with are going to be slightly different to if you stayed in Northampton and you were down at a pub in Dustin. You know what I mean? You would have um, options and also invites to conversations you would not otherwise have been privy. Uh, sense? Uh, total sense. And, and, and again, I'm trying not to think too much about what's coming in this podcast because I'm sure you're going to ask me questions. But there is a theme to my career, you know, and that is I am a sponge. You know, I want to learn going back from my monologue about the, the firm in Nottingham, wanting to understand it, sponging off people, you know, you know, trying to gather information. Mm-hmm. The chairman of the South Wales company gathering information. Um, not with the intent, was it with the intent to set up on your own? Did you always know that was a thing you were just absorbing? And then when you felt full enough, you went, never, never, I am not, I did not at the age of 17, 18, 19, 20, have any intention of, of being on my own. I was just living my life. Mm -hmm. I was working hard. There was an ethic there. I was a hard worker, a real hard worker. Yeah. You know, work didn't bother me. You know, I sacrificed a lot, sacrificed a lot of social stuff yeah. for work, but but the work ethic didn't bother me. Um, I had no intention of having my own business. Yeah. Um, again, probably f- I'm thinking back maybe four years in, um, I then got approached by um, <clears throat> a business owner in Northampton. Yeah. Who, um, who, he doesn't anymore, but he owned a very successful flexible packaging firm. Right. And he saw an opportunity to match flexible packaging with rigid thermoform trays and to effectively sell to his customers a collaborative package. So what does that mean? Like collaborative package. So, so when you go into, um, a supermarket and you buy something that's in a plastic tray, it has to be finished off somehow when you buy it. It's either got a lidding film like sealed when you get on the top. Or chicken in, yeah. Yep, or it's flow wrapped with a piece of plastic. Well, the company in Northampton did the lidding film and the flow wrap, and he had this idea that if he could sell a package to his customers, so he sells the plastic tray, as well as the lidding film or the flow wrap, 
there was a market opportunity. 100%, yeah. So he approached me and asked me to set up a division of his business um, to sell this collaborative um, solution. Were you guys one of the first to do it? Yeah, and it failed. That wasn't that wasn't a solution back because it is the solution today, isn't it? When you go into Sainsbury's, Morris, and wherever, all meat in a tray comes plastic tray. Yep. I think Morrison's now do it as a sealed package. Uh, but but like they they all they all they all do variations on it, Liam. The 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 idea that he came up with was a good idea, mm. and he approached me and asked me to set it up. So I set up this division mm-hmm. within his flexible packaging firm in Northampton. So I had a staff, I set up the division, um, and it failed. Uh, and I failed. Um, we, it was probably, probably the, first, the, first, the first failure, if you like. Yeah. Um, what it, did that feel like? Um, I don't remember. Bottled it up, boxed yeah, it up. <laughs> probably. Yeah. yeah. I remember it, it never felt like a failure. I'm looking back now on it as a failure. You know, it, it never, it, it never. It wasn't like a, a culminating moment like, oh, this failed. It, yeah. No, it, the, the, actual, the actual division that we set up didn't work. It was undercapitalized. You know, we tried to do it on the cheap, really, which was unfair on him because it was a very, very good business. The, the idea was great. That division that we set up didn't really work. It didn't achieve the numbers that we wanted it to achieve. I personally didn't fail, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but the idea that he came up with, we executed it badly. That's on my watch. I sure. executed it badly. Yeah. Um, however... I didn't, I didn't leave the business. Um, I then started being, a, a, I became a shareholder in the business, you know, and, and took a senior role within the business. Yeah. Um, along with, uh, he, he did the same with another uh, guy that was there who's, who since went off and, and set his own business up and recently exited and he's a super wealthy guy, you know, so it was a great, it was a great proving ground for us. So again, it was part of my learning curve. It was, you know, from, from Nottingham to the South Wales, London office based, then to the flexible packaging firm. It's all adding into my learning and, you know, adding more strings to my bow. Yeah you know, and the guy in question, and again, I'm trying to keep names out of it. The guy in question, the Northampton, you know, successful flexible packaging firm taught me a lot, taught Mm -hmm. me even more about business, understanding business, understanding, you know, I was probably then at that stage beginning to understand um, income statements, balance sheet, cash flow forecast. So in the, I'd been a cog up until now, in larger businesses, yeah. I was now becoming well-versed in how businesses were structured and how you make money in so a business. So you're in the senior position in which your your realm of understanding had advanced. Correct. Yeah. Like, I yeah. can get sales, let's bring numbers in. Yeah. Now to, like, what the numbers are paying into the wider. Absolutely. The wider. I also, at that point, had staff. 
So, um, because it doesn't always come natural to managers managing staff. You know, you've got to work hard. It never came natural to me. You know, I had to work hard. Leadership is a huge quality that you have to fashion, isn't it? Because you can't just instruct people to think and feel how you feel, the same level of value that you have in that specific initiative that you're putting in place. You need those people to want to do that thing to the same level as you can. 99% of people aren't going to do that, are they? No, you're you're right. And there, there is a constant, up until this point, there was a constant in my career path, although working for different firms and slightly different packaging genres, Mm -hmm. the constant was the marketplace was the same. It was the UK chilled food industry. Mm -hmm. So right from a 19-year-old up to where I am now, late 20s, my customer base and my knowledge of my chosen marketplace, the UK food retailers and the food packers were constant. So I had a name, good or bad, I had a name out in the industry. Whilst in this position at the flexible packaging firm, unbeknown to me, Mm -hmm. this 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 is the bit that you really want to know about. This is business. You tell me, you tell me. I'm here absorbing all this. Yeah, this is business ownership. Sure. Coming on to business ownership. Unbeknown to me, there was a very small packaging firm in Aylesbury that was owned by two guys. I've come and visit you there, haven't I? Yeah. Um, Owned by two guys. Um, One of them, sadly, had had a stroke a bad stroke. Mm -hmm. So the remaining shareholding director had approached some of his customers in the marketplace on the quiet and said, my partner's had a stroke. I want to continue in the business and grow the business, but I need a partner. Do you know anybody that is currently out in the industry that I should be talking to. And he shook a few trees and my name fell out of three or four trees within the chilled food industry. So he phoned me and he said, um, excuse me, I'd like to have a chat with you. Um, I was happy where I was. Mm. I was a shareholder of a packaging firm in Northampton. No no focused career aspirations at that stage because I didn't need to. You know, I was growing myself. I was in a growing business. I was in a well-invested business. My career path was going well. I I had no ambitions, you know, other than to continue doing what I, you know, why would I, mm. you know, if I, if I, if I'd have chosen to look back at that point mm-hmm. from a 19 year old to a 28 year old, the graph was already doing that. Yeah, yeah. So there was no point for me to self-analyze. Yeah. So he phoned me up and, um, I went round to his house one Sunday. He told me the sad story about his partner yeah. who was still in hospital. Yeah. Um, and he said, um, uh, I remember at the time they, 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 their turnover was 1.7 million. They employed 12 people. It's yep. a tiny company. 
I mean, I was... 1.7. 1.7. For 12 people. Yeah. Um, that's massive. That's a big turnover for that volume of people. That's manufacturing though, isn't it? It's man- that's all I've known. Manufacturing. Okay. Um, it was food packaging. It was thermoforming. It was plastics. It's what I'd done. Um, and he said, but I need you to buy Bill out. Okay. Um, this was new to me. Um, am I going to do that then? You know, I didn't say that to him. You know, I said it to myself. How am I going to do that? So we had the business valued and, uh, and the business was valued at, I'm, I'm quite happy to talk about the numbers. Business, yeah. The business was valued at half a million. Cool. So I had to find quarter of a million quid. Um, I had no idea how to find quarter of a million quid. Um, I can't remember what I was earning, but it's going back a long time now. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what my salary would be in today's money. So it's, it's pointless me even trying to calculate it, but. There's know, nowhere near that. No, nowhere near. <laughs> no, not, not even, it wouldn't have even been a quarter of that. Right, okay. You know, and suddenly, you know, I was given the opportunity to buy 50% of an existing growing business but I had to find quarter of a million quid. So I remortgaged my house. I um, applied and got a few credit cards, maxed them out, took a personal loan from the bank, and somehow or other, I found quarter of a million quid um, with a huge amount of debt attached to it. Wasn't interested in interest rates, Loan repayment terms, didn't care. I just needed quarter of a million quid. I mean, very foolishly. You know, if, if a loan shark had offered me at the time quarter of a million quid yeah. on, a, on a 25% compound interest over the next 10 years, <laughs> I'd have signed, you yeah. know, because I was only focused on quarter of a million quid, very naively. But I got it. And I became, then I owned, owned a business. So that that in that in that instance again. So you've shown me again something useful for me, really, because you've shown me how you've had to leverage somebody else's money to to purchase a business, right? Which turned out to be a profitable exercise for you in the long run. Yeah. Yep. Um, we had the, no we had no plan. No. These day this day and age, like I've got <clears throat> brokers that I can speak to that can do a management buyout. So you could just say, "Yep, yeah, we'll get him out." The business would front the cost of the the, the loan facility for you to buy in. And then you would your you would pay that out of your divvies or something like that. You would pay the loan repayment out of that. The I, it, again, that's something that would be done in this day and age. Again, there's an awful lot of water that's gone under the bridge. Sure. So there's things that I, there are things that I, either conveniently or or or, or certainly for this podcast, not conveniently <laughs> forgotten. Um, I suspect, and I seem to have vague recollection that there were some equity trade-offs yeah. offered to me. But thankfully, albeit no, no real focus, no real focus at the time, I wanted 50% of the business. Yeah. So I wasn't prepared to relinquish any equity 
for capital. I would always say, and this is something that the industry, would all, I would always recommend, is always debt over equity. Because debt is it is finite. It comes to an end. And you can pay that off. And the interest is the only thing you're paying. But equity, when you give away a share of your business and you grow that, and you say go from a million turnover to 10 emmer turnover, and the profit margins goes from, I don't know, you got a quarter of a million in your accounts to two million in your accounts. You're giving somebody a ten percent share of that. It's I think, a lot of money. I think I look back now and it, it sorry, look back now with the knowledge that I've got now. And I I partly agree with you and partly disagree with you. Sure. It's a it's a it's a personal thing. Mm. For me, I did not want to relinquish equity. Yeah. Um not that I'm putting myself on the same page or 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 you know, even in the same book or the same country as, um, what's his name that owns Amazon? Can't, oh, yeah. Can't think um, of his name now. Uh, Je- uh, Jeff Bezos. Be- Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> so Jeff Bezos, uh, and, and don't quote me on this, I think Jeff Bezos owns considerably less than 10% of Amazon. I think he's had to do that, though, because of the size of entity that he, he has. And that, and that's what I'm saying. That's the difference. He realised that back in the early days, because he had a vision that Amazon was going to be huge mm-hmm. and better to own 10% of a massive organisation than 50% of, of something that he was never going to be able to grow well, that, that 10% size. is 100 billion. We were never, yeah, we were never in that realm. So I just personally knew for no tangible reason, yes, there's a tangible reason, but but only tangible with with my thought process now. At the time, I just wanted fifty percent. Yeah, I think it was probably because I didn't want any less than my soon to be new business partner in the same business. You want you want a similar operating function to him. Yeah. You want to be able to say, like, let's make a decision. You don't want him to be like, well, I've got majority. You know what I mean? You, yeah. On many levels, that's the position that you don't want to be in or one doesn't want to be in because if you're doing a business with somebody, 50-50 is the model. Half and half, we're both equally at risk here. I suppose when you're buying into something like that, all of the risks that you laid out, as you said, you've taken loans, you've done this, you've done that, without a care for the interest rates, you were like, because the end goal was the business and you're uncompromising balance was I want 50 fucking percent. I'm not going to settle for anything less than 50%. I don't care if I have to remortgage my house to the hill. I don't care what the monthly repayment is. I don't care what the total repay is. That's one of the things that is so unspoken about in the world and in the industry at the moment that I work in. It's, it's like everybody wants the cheapest rate for the most buck. And somebody could call me now and say, look, I want to do a management buyout. I get 50% of this company and it's going to be difficult, but I want to do it. You know, when you get into a a battle with the rates and this, that, and the other, sometimes the rates are the rates. You get quoted that rate. That's the rate. There's no negotiating. That's what you have to pay. And at that time you would have said yes. And what a lot of business owners forget in this day and age is sometimes the rates are the rates. The government, the, the, the banks, the Bank of England sets that base rate. Anything above that is how they earn money. So yeah, it's, it's you, crazy. Liam, you're right. But also, but also the balance of power, you know, mm. as you grow, moves with you. Yeah, of course. When you're like, like, like a 17-year-old, for example, going into a bank to borrow five grand for a car, the bank manager will get a book out 
and say, this is the interest rate. And the 17-year-old will say, thank you very much. If I walk into a bank now to borrow some money, <laughs> I negotiate. I nego- and, and, that, and that's the difference. So, so going back to, so, so suddenly, this is really the start of my career, with the knowledge that I've gleaned up until now, I own a business. I own 50% of a business. Didn't even know what the hell I was buying. Mm. I just At that point, it was the right thing to do. Mm. There, was no, there was no strategic move. Suddenly, I own 50% of a business. Right, what do we do? Who are the customers? Yeah, I, 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 I did no due diligence. I, I probably did, but not an awful lot of due diligence. You didn't even know what that meant to, the, to a degree then for, no. the, for buying a business, right? It was a tiny little company turning over 1.7 million, working in a marketplace that I knew very well. And um, they serviced their customers better than I'd ever known. Really? I'd never known service like it. Yeah. And that was the light bulb moment. I realised that service was king in the food industry you know, you have to have the stock. You have to be able to service your customers. The retailers are relentless. If you miss delivery dates, the fines are huge. You know, it is... Fines? Oh, yeah. Oh, massive fines. Yeah. Really? Oh, huge fines. Yeah. So pressure's on. Cheapest, be the cheapest, be the fastest, be there on time every week it is, without fail. It is, it brutal. is, it is a, that's the word, it's a brutal industry. So I then realised that if we were going to grow this business, we had to grow it based on servicing our customers. And that was our USP. You know, we serviced to death. If at the time a customer needed 5,000 trays for a new launch and they were in Scotland, they'd be in the boot of my car and I'd be driving to Scotland. Not, Not caring, not even thinking. That's what the customer needs. That's what we've got to do. You know, we had, we had, we had owner-driver van deliveries going everywhere. It eroded our margin, but we built a business and a reputation on service. Word gets around the food industry, we start growing. We start getting new work. Customers started approaching us because of our reputation. Wow. We outgrew our premises. We then had to build a new factory. You built it? Built it from scratch. Wow. Um, what was that like as an exercise? If you can recall. I can recall. Because um, that's a brand new terrain, isn't it? As an entrepreneur, brand new terrain. Bought a business. Oh God, no, I fucking build an entire um, warehouse structure. Obviously what, get people what, in to assist. What was it? What was it like? We were, we were naive as fuck. Mm. You know, I mean, we probably made some horrendous mistakes Mm. looking back, you know, but there are seminal moments that I remember. I remember, I remember the day we moved into it, we had a viewing gallery over the factory, me and my then partner, two of us owned the business still. We had, we put all of our machines into the production space and it was, it, you know, it was like it was like putting an empty bucket in a swimming pool and looking and going, how the hell are we going to fill all of, you know, we had yeah. five machines or something, but we had the capacity for 35 machines, you know, and paying the costs of a factory 
as if, you know, so we knew we had to grow and we knew we had to grow quickly. Um, we moved in and um, all new all new designs that go into retailers, you have to have various things stamped into the bottom of the tray. Whoever watches this now will become boring and every time uh-huh. they go into a, into a retailer, they'll pick up a plastic tray and look. There has to be a number in the bottom of the tray which tells the consumer what the plastic is made out of. There then has to be a recycling code which tells the customer how much recycler is in there. There's then a number in the tray which tells the manufacturer which casting from the tool it came from in case there's a problem so you can trace it back for total traceability. There's then a tool number that is stamped in the bottom of the tray. These are all just industry numbers. It's yeah, boring yeah, for everybody, yeah. but you have to You do know that. it's there. Yeah. So our first, so we didn't want, and, and by, by EC law, that number has to be traced back to the factory. The day we opened our brand new factory, we didn't want the first tool coming out of there to be named 0001. Me and Neil, my partner, just didn't want it to be one. So the first tool that came out of the factory, our first code, which is registered at Marks and Spencers, is 1664. Now, I know it's 1664. Um, and sadly, the reason it's 1664 is because the day we opened it, me and my partner were standing on the inspection window drinking a can of Cronenberg 1664, <laughs> celebrating ourselves, opening our factory. Wow. So the first tool was 1664. So they're little Amazing. Memories. Okay, they're oh, little right. memories. Yeah, man. So it was a single shift factory working eight hours. And the problem with manufacturing is it's capital intensive, as you know from your day job. And when you're successful, you need more capacity. Because when customers give you more work, you need to be able to produce it and manufacture it. And you therefore need more machines to produce it. And more material. And more, more material. Everything. More, more warehouse, more staff. That's your growing pains. Now, at the time, we were working a single shift factory, eight hours. So the next stage was to go double shift. So you need more staff. So you then work in 16 hours. Then you grow again. And, and you've got to pay those staff in that period of time, right? Yeah. No, we Were they can, weekly or monthly? Combinations. Okay. Weekly and monthly. We then move into 24-hour, seven-day working. And we couldn't afford supervisory staff. And when you're in the food industry, your manufacturing facilities need to be like a hospital because you're inspected, because people... there is. Our customers are not the retailers. Our customers are the food packers. So, for example, in Northampton, the biggest food packer is a company called Greencore. Yeah. Malt Park. Park, yeah. They make M&S sushi, sandwiches, salads. Mm-hmm. They're our customers. But the retailers have influence over us. So we are audited by the retailers and by the food well, packers. They're the ones that are liable when they sold the food to the consumers. Correct. Right? So it's a very expensive industry to be in 
food packaging. Margin's low, right? It's volume. Margin is tiny. It's all about volume. Volume is massive. You move a lot of plastic. I don't remember the numbers now, but we were probably producing 30 million units a week. A week? Of various different sizes. But we were working on 2 and 3% net margin. But the net margin from, 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 so just to put an example, the best year that you had as a business in terms of turnover, gross margin or net margin, do you remember like the best year where you were like able to take the biggest divvy or do you remember the year that you were like, fucking hell, we've done over 10M. We've done. Yeah, the best, the best, the best year at that factory in Aylesbury was a turnover of approximately 14 mil. Jesus. Um, Selling plastic trays is crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that's only the start of it. That was just that factory in Aylesbury. So you ended up with two factories and a, a satellite factory, didn't you? Yeah. And your client base then grew. And we were, on, and we were only 10% of the market usage, Jeez. even at our height. Really? Yeah. And at our height, it was 95 million. That's the, that's the biggest turnover that yeah. you got to see. <laughs> see, I didn't know that. And I, like, do you know what? And one of the fondest memories that I've got. We of, might edit a bit of that down. No, 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 it's okay. Well, it's interesting. Because, I won't tell you the numbers that, that, that fall off that. Uh, uh, well, at, at, the moment, at the moment, all I've done is told you good news. I can't wait to get to the bad news, but I think this is where I'm just prefacing like some of the stuff that you've got, some of the places that you've been like when, because when somebody says, oh, I made 2 million, yeah. If down the pub, you say, oh, the business made 2 million. The business has turned, I've got friends that have turned, uh, I've got a really good uh, set of friends that have taken their, um, their drainage company. I won't talk numbers, but they're well into seven figures of turnover which is phenomenal for the first couple of years, right? But when then we talk with a different industry and a different player and, and at the end of the journey, retired, sold out, and you're hearing numbers like 95 million in turnover. And it's not important, but it's important because 95 million in turnover is like 800, well, I dread to think what that is in a month. 8 million a month, 9 million a month in the bank. And to watch those, I see bank statements quite regularly for businesses and to see that amount of money flowing in and out, it's terrifying. And I deal with manufacturing, I dealt with one of my biggest clients. It's, 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 it's a real difficult thing. And, and I know we're jumping the gun because you you're excited about big numbers, but there's a, there's a, again, there's a saying that I pinched from my FD, my old FD who's still a great friend of mine. I'm sure I know what this saying is before you said it as well. I'm pretty confident. Okay. And he used to say, you know, the difference between working in the business and working on the business. I don't think you expected me to say that. Um, And when you work in the business, those numbers don't mean anything. It's only when you remove yourself and you work on the business. So the difference between working in it, so you're in that whirlpool. Yeah. If you can afford yourself time to remove yourself from that and work on the business, the skill is working on the business. Most processes, isn't it? Yeah. Most people don't have the time or the skill. I didn't until the latter stages because you're in the middle of it all. So 
It's only when I tell you now numbers like that, when you're in it, that they're irrelevant. Mm. They, they genuinely are because they're just, you have daily problems. You know, again, you know, I sound a bit too deep here, but, you know. You're never too if, deep if, talking if, to if, me. If I'm talking, if I'm talking, if, if, if you talk about a business being a barrel of water, you know, there's always a leak. You know, when you plug it, you know, the most time you get to go, oh, everything's going fine mm. is 10 minutes. Yeah. There's another problem. So we get to, so if we circle back to our growth times in Aylesbury, when it comes to suddenly we need to put on a permanent night shift or we need to turn the factory from 24 hours, five days a week to 24 seven, we genuinely couldn't afford people. We couldn't afford supervisors. And I know you wanted me to say this because you've, you know that I've told you before back in the day. Um, fine. Okay. We can't afford it. I'll do it. So for probably a 12 month period, me and my business partner worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, anybody listening to this saying, bullshit. Oh, you can't work 24 hours, seven days a week. You can if you set up a bed in your office or in, or in, or in the warehouse. You know, over time, I think you've twisted slightly the story that I told you. I actually slept in my office. It was Neil that preferred to sleep in the warehouse. He used to set up a bed in the warehouse. But we could not afford night shift supervisors. So we worked our day job for 12, 13, 14 hours and then went and slept in the office. You know, I had to put makeshift curtains in my office because the factory was 24 hours. It was noisy. There were lights. I had to make my office dark. Did the staff know? Oh, yeah, of course they knew. Yeah. They made me coffee at six o'clock in the morning. Wake up, Steve. Do you know what? Because for me, like... I, I, because we're a food producing yeah. factory, we, we, we had... Um, uh, again, th- this isn't what your podcast is about, but just to let you know, when you operate, there are certain things when you operate a food packaging factory that is unlike any other factory. So for a start, people that are on the shop floor packing trays that food's got to go into, they have to wear... Um, it's like the white smocks, yeah. button-up smocks, hairnets, no jewellery, no makeup, no perfume, no pockets. Sanitised. Sanitised. And therefore, we can't touch those overalls. So every week, everybody had three sets of overalls. Every week, they're collected by a food-approved dry cleaners. They come in the next day and they replenish everybody's individual locker with clean smocks that then people have an individual key and they put their smocks on and off they go. That is a huge cost. That is part of the entry-level costs to get involved in manufacturing packaging for the food industry. What? Because of that, we had huge changing rooms. And in those changing rooms... We had showers. So therefore, 
it might sound crazy for you or people listening to this. What, the, the MD slept in his office? Yeah, but every morning at six o'clock, I left my office, walked down to the change rooms and had a shower. It was, you know, the showers in the changing room. It wasn't like being homeless. It was a requirement of you to be there in order to make sure the ship was running smoothly. Like if you're not there. Until we accumulated enough money to be able to employ. The other thing that I was managing to do was to to build meaningful relationships with customers and with influencers. When I say influencers. Not like today's influencers. No, I mean real ones, retailers. Okay who have the real influence in the chilled food industry. So I got particularly close to two UK retailers, Tesco and Marks and Spencers. Massive ones. Uh, we traded with all of them anyway, but Tesco and Marks and Spencers were the big ones. And I became close to one of the main board directors of Tesco, which is a very senior person, you know, and... They um, had pretty much saturated what they believed their growth in the UK was going to be. Mm -hmm. So they decided that they wanted to go overseas. So they moved to California and they created a brand called Fresh and Easy. So Tesco moved to California in 2006. 2005, 2006. Just before the big financial crash, not long before that. And I got a phone call from said director from California. Uh, It was all very highly secret, you know, and he said, I'd like to speak to you, but before I speak to you, you need to sign some NDAs. He sent me some NDAs. He said, "Um, we're over in California. We're setting up... um, 220 supermarkets on the West Coast and the packaging industry in California is archaic and old-fashioned and we want you to do all of our packaging in California. So we'd like you to come over. So he sent me a ticket, sitting at the right part of the plane, obviously. Oh, yeah. Is that your first one? First one. Um, So... um, so I flew over um, with Eddie Izzard. Really? He was sitting next to me, bless him. Wow. Bit of a hero. I was yeah. worshipping. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I probably told him I paid for the tickets in Samaritan. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do this. I yeah. do this daily. Yeah, yeah. You know, what in fact. Our third I'm, one today. <laughs> yeah, what in fact, not only have I stolen the virgin salt and pepper things, I'm trying to rip the telly off. <laughs> take as many pictures as possible because yeah. um, you're excited. You know, I mean, I'm still like a kid, you know. So off I went. I spent a fortnight out in California um, with the exec board of, of, of Tesco and we did, we did just that. We, um, we, we were out there for two years. I had a team of people out there. We manufactured and designed everything in the UK and we shipped it across um, to California and it was exciting. And how could you, co- how, just a quick question, just from a finances side of it, how could you accommodate for the additional shipping costs in the, did Tesco's wear that or did your business wear that? 
shipping costs out to California at the time were about three and a half thousand pound for a high cube. A high cube is 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 what you know is yeah, a shipping yeah, container. Yeah, yeah. Um, a high cube holds fifty two pallets. It was about an extra four percent value on the load, so it wasn't prohibitive. And Tesco paid it. Yeah, that's what I meant. You're like, because if your yeah. margins were already tight, that's like a... Tesco paid it. Good. Um, but they paid it. Again, it was an interesting thing. Did you make margin on that? Yeah. Good. Um, well, we did because, um, again, this was an interesting... I'm still in my sponge-like, you know, at this point I own my own business, but I'm still learning. I'm still learning from others, you know, and now this has taken me into a very senior level in how a retailer operates. So I'm suddenly one of the chosen few in meetings with directors of Tesco. You know, they had an office in a place called El Zagundo, which is just outside Manhattan Beach in California. I had my own office in their offices. You know, I mean, I was only out there three months of the year, you know, the office wasn't used for nine months, but it was still my office with my name on it. You know, I mean, they, they held us in such high regard. Amazing. And all of their California costs, they wanted to uh, put in a separate accounting bin. So all of our additional costs to supply to California were invoiced as a separate cost. So our cost model stayed where it was. Our selling model stayed where it was. Any California additional costs were just invoiced to Tesco on a separate invoice. So it was it was just a, a, an in and out money. So we moved out there, and we enjoyed that business for two years. Uh, look, da, da, da. and um, and Tesco then went bust. Did they? There's a, there's a shocker. Did it go bust? Oh, 2008? No, Tesco in the UK didn't go bust. Oh, Tesco out there. They put, they put Fresh and Easy into Chapter 11. Well, they're competing with 7-Eleven, Walmart, all them big nutters out there. Yeah, and, um, and the, their biggest competitor on the West Coast was a retail group called Trader Joe's, <clears throat> which, is a, which is a great food retailer. <clears throat> I've heard of it. Really, really good. I mean, America's so big, they have, apart from Walmart, which is national, they have regional retailers. Really? Because it's such a big place. Mm. And Tesco underestimated the American customer. You know, in the UK, people like bespoke stuff. They like fresh stuff. They're, they're quite happy to shop every other day. In America, they want to shop once a fortnight. You know, they want, to, they want, they want trolleys that are massive and load up their utility vehicles and you know they don't want to shop every day tesco didn't do they that. don't like fresh stuff then as much no tesco underestimated the whole economy so fat then isn't it yeah tesco under underestimated their customer and they gave it two years hemorrhaged cost and they went into chapter chapter 11 out there took us with them how was that because the, How was that? Well, I'm just trying to, because I'm trying to understand the model there, because you, you as a business... I'll tell you how bad it was in a minute. 
Well, you as a business went out there, you took the factory, you, you, you opened a new factory, you decked it out. No, you, you literally had a we distribution. Ser- we serviced it from the UK. Okay. We, we, we leased a distribution warehouse out in California um, and we filled that from the UK and that then shipped into uh, the Fresh and Easy sites. Yeah. Um, I think our UK business in Aylesbury was continuing to grow and the Fresh and Easy side was, you know, the, under the banner of Tesco, was a new arm to our business, which if I look back was a mistake of mine because I focused too much on Fresh and Easy and I let the UK side I didn't let it dwindle, that's wrong, but I didn't focus on the UK side as much as I should. But it was a huge opportunity that you were focusing on, wasn't it? If, it was if you'd have got that right, that's game over, isn't it? If you'd have got that, if, they'd, if Tesco's had got that right, fresh and easy, and they'd have taken a big portion of the market out there, it's a no-brainer. You'd flipped a coin on that one, didn't you? Or am I wrong? It, it, it got further than that because during the time supplying fresh and easy out in California, it was quite apparent that for a period of time they were going to be paying our shipping costs. But at some point they were going to stop offering to pay our shipping costs and we were probably going to have to manufacture out there. So I'd already started exploring manufacturing sites. So had Fresh and Easy continued, I probably personally would be in California now. I would have... I would have got rid of the UK business, moved everything to California and I'd have stayed there. And then built your business there. Yeah. Supplying. Because I loved it out there. Oh, oh wouldn't I? Yeah, well, wouldn't it? It's California. You know, Northampton or California. I think I was single at the time as well. I mean, it's what's not to love. Right. Making good money out in the world. Devilishly I mean, that, handsome. You know, <laughs> cruising around in, in California with an English accent. Deadly weapon. In my Mustang. Yeah. Do you have a Mustang, did you? Yeah. Um, so, but I took my eye off the ball. And, and you know, there is a theme in, in, in this podcast, and I'm, I'm not, I don't want to dwell on it, but I am going to make a, a reference to it now. My focus on the business and my excitement and my work ethic and my dedication meant that other things suffer. It's, it's, you know, it's not by chance that I'm not married with kids. It's not by chance that I don't have a stable home life, you know, because I've swapped that for growing my businesses. Mm. You know, I, I don't regret, you know, and I have had some lovely relationships, you know, some great relationships, but they've probably failed because of me because of my focus on, on, on my business. So, you know, things give, you know, you can't do everything, you know, and, it, and it's not a regret, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's a fact. Um, so, so circling back again to, to, to Calif- Can I just touch on a point before you move on from that? Sure. One thing that's been a common theme for me as a 35-year-old man in several failed relationships is that, what you mentioned there is the focus was 
elsewhere so the relationship suffered. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs could potentially identify with this because there's an inherent sense of value that comes in wanting to build something which I can't put a finger on myself. I have willingly and gone with all with the right intent of like, I'm going to try and make it for my family. I'm going to try and make it for my kids. I'm going to try and make it. But when you have the infrastructure of a family, your attempt to make it is inherently so risky that it doesn't leave either time or effort or energy, sometimes money for the family. And that's an incredibly difficult thing for a lot of us to manage. So as you've demonstrated and mentioned, you weren't able to circumvent the value into the relationships to make it because so it's not what you wanted to do. Is it ultimately a want or was that a, a mistake? It's a, it's a double, I don't think I was thinking, you know, for me, for me, it was just a nat, what I was doing was natural, mm. you know, growing a business, being committed. I'll do that. I'll go there. No problem. You know, I know, I now know that when Tesco or Marks and Spencers called me to a commercial review meeting at quarter to five on a Friday in their offices. I know now, I know now that was a punishment, you know, at the time, no problem. You know, it was a punishment because it was the quarter to five slot in Paddington Basin, M&S, on a Friday. And that meeting finished at seven o'clock. It's my Friday gone but it didn't matter because I wasn't married with kids. So it's a double-edged sword, although I realise now and recognise that my relationship life has suffered because I put too much priority on my business. My business was successful because of that, you know, because I was fluid and flexible enough to be able to do those things and didn't have to, we're meant to be going to Are there so any regrets so. there? Are there any regrets there? Do you wish you focused on a relationship somewhat more? Was there one that got away that really flavoured it for you when you think, fucking hell, I should have tried harder or do more? Was there, is there a time where you think, I wish I had kids to leave, if you don't mind me asking like personal questions like this? No, so. I don't mind at all. Um, yeah, 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 there is one that got away. Um, that's all I'll say on that. Sure. No, you know, cool. but, but yes, there is. And, um, uh, but I, but I never wanted kids. I'm a godfather to five kids. And I, and I, you know, when I tell people I didn't want kids, they think it's because I don't like kids. I, I do like You're kids. You're always great with those. I mean, I remember you, I always remember you coming I just around. didn't want them. No. But I, but I, but I love kids. You yeah. know, I'm, I've got, I've, I've got a niece and a nephew, yeah. you know, who, Sadly, I'm not close. I'm not close, close because my niece lives on the Silly Isles, so we don't see each other very often. And my nephew's at an age where he's all over the place, living his best life. Bless him, you know. But we're still close. Yeah. You know, we're not physically. You know, we don't see each other as much as I would like. Families aren't that way. People have this idea that, like, for me. So kids. So in answer to your question, yeah. kids is the only thing I didn't want. Right. Or albeit. Albeit I like kids. But a relationship and a marriage would have then come with, again, what comes with that is a prerequisite to have to think about somebody else before your business or the things you want to do. 
Yeah, I mean, it, now's not the time for it, but I, but I will answer your question. Yeah, there is one that 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 got away. Yeah, but I was, um, you know, I was enjoying growing the business. And yeah, I wasn't even at this stage now, where I'm telling you about fresh and easy in California. I look back now, and none of it was strategic. You know, I'm, I I only became strategic later and even now when i'm when i'm retired i'm i'm more strategic than i was when i was working mm. you know because you're always learning things you know the the california thing you know i i was perceptive perceptive enough to know that we had to manufacture out there because tesco would not have continued paying our distribution costs from the uk to the west coast of america so i knew that you know, and therefore I had that strategic move to manufacture out there. What I didn't see was them putting themselves in chapter 11 and taking us with them and taking every other supplier with them. That was the start of the downfall of the Aylesbury business. Um, yeah, let's look at that because there were some really tough times you went through there. Yeah, we went bust. Really? Doesn't get... It doesn't, it doesn't get tougher than that um, because we didn't react quick enough because we were in uncharted waters. So up until this point, super successful, growing business, growing its assets, growing its balance sheet. Um, me and my business partner having all the trappings, you know, we were profitable enough, therefore we were paying ourselves majority in dividends to, you know, claw back as many tax offsets legally. <laughs> um, <laughs> albeit a bit close to the wire. It has to be though. Um, so we're playing that game. That's um, what business is, isn't it? Uh, you know, so all of that going well. And then when things start going bad, you have to react. And because things hadn't gone bad, we didn't react quick enough. So fresh and easy causes a problem by sucking some value out of our balance sheet and our P&L because they went chapter 11. So we severed all ties and we then refocused on the UK. We then lost a massive customer. And I don't know why we lost them. We lost them I suspect, although it's unsavory for me to admit this, I suspect we lost them because of me, because I didn't have as much of a focus on the UK at the time as I should have. Yeah. That was a third of our turnover. Shit. We lost overnight. And at what point was the turnover at at that time? So 11, right. 11 and a half. So you lost a good three, four. Three. Yeah. I look back now and I know what we should have done. I absolutely know what, what we should have, have done. done. We, should have, we should have killed at least two of the day uh, of the shifts. We should have killed the night shift, killed one of the day shifts, downsized the business, culled staff um, and ridden that storm and resized the business commensurate with its new turnover. Without question. That's what you do, yeah. That's what you do. Because the overheads exceed the turnover. We didn't. Well. We kept the overheads. Yeah. We thought we could trade out of it. 
Why wouldn't we? We've done it before. Mm. We'll bolster new customers on. So we did. But margins were tough. Margins were tight. We then were extending um, our creditor days. Our debtors days were looking fairly poor. We were running out of cash. In a manufacturing business, cash is king. In a lot of other businesses, it's not so. I mean, everybody says cash is king, cash is king. I disagree with that. In certain businesses, it's not that important. In a manufacturing business, because you've got so, so many creditors, you know, numerous creditors to run a manufacturing business, all the different components that you're buying in every day, every week, every month. You know, you've got even in a, even in a, a fairly small manufacturing business, you've probably got 150 creditors. You know, we probably had about three or 400, su- call them supplies, if you like. Yeah, no, but no, I understand. I know that. I know, I know you do. Lingo. Um, um, and, and we were losing, we, 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 were, we were drowning in debt because we'd not downsized the business. Um, so we, we had a tough call to make. You know, because at that point, the bank was breathing down our necks. Banks are fucking useless. They're horrible, mate. Banks, I've been on both sides of banks in my career. I've been on banks that are gagging to give us money, that want to keep giving us money, that throw away the rule book, that see your growth, see your gross margin. Never worried about your net margin. That's not important they want to see that you've got a strong balance sheet you know if you've got a strong balance sheet they're throwing money at you Mm. and the minute there's blood in the water they are ruthless absolutely ruthless Mm. so i had no choice but to be fairly ruthless you know which i'm not proud is the wrong word you you do you do desperate things when you're a business owner you know, I borrowed, I had never, never any problem in borrowing money off people. You know, I was always going to pay it back, you know, mm. and, and money has different values, you know, throughout your career. When you're growing a business, money is just a commodity. You don't want money because of money's sake. You want it because you need to convert that into sales and profit. In order to do that, you need money to buy that shiny thing with buttons and switches and stuff, you know. Um, so we got to a situation where the bank was breathing down our neck. We hadn't reacted quick enough. So um, I needed to sell the business and quickly. So... <clears throat> I started marketing the business to three or four competitors that we were close to because at this point I'm at the peak of my career. I'm within, within my chosen industry. I'm a name. I'm a well-known person. My business has got a great reputation. It's respected by customers, competitors, and retailers alike. So it's got value in it. So in the end, we sold the business to a um, <clears throat> to a firm down in Somerset, um, but in order to maximise the sale price, we put the business into a pre-packed administrative state, and we effectively ring fenced off the debt, and we sold the assets 
and then re-phoenixed it out. We paid back the majority of the debt to existing creditors. We weren't, you know, we didn't mm. sail off into the but sunset. It's, it's all a thing that it has a, to be done, isn't it? It was a strategic move. So you've got in business, isn't it? Strategy. That this was this was being done over twenty-four hours a day for three or four weeks. I just didn't sleep. It was phone calls, you know, creditors, banks, you know, I was refusing to take them because I was trying to strike a deal to sell the business. You know, it was um And when was this? What year was this? Two thousand and seven eight it had nothing to do with the financial crash that was just coincidental yeah this was this was poor management on my part and 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 taking my eye off the uk focus because i was focusing too much on the glitzy fresh and easy california thing so and then we lost a, a customer because of that same reason sure so then horrible time horrible yeah, horrible, horrible time you know, I've been through some very, very similar times, not in the magnitude. We kept all the staff. Yeah. Apart from my business partner. Amazing. So did he make an exit? No. Okay. Oh, did he, is he? He's alive. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> that got a bit ominous then. I thought you'd like, well, he, ended he, it. he doesn't really talk to me. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay, sure. He was a casualty. He had to be a casualty of the business, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know you, you get into you get into those sort of situations, and you know you, you, you know the, the the company that you're selling to, this you know they will yeah yeah we absolutely want you and and we want your business and we want you, Steve. We want you on our board, you know. So you know obviously that's what I wanted to do, um, but but we don't want that guy. So you need to do something about him. Ah, that's that's big boy stuff, isn't it? That's, that's, that's the stuff. That's character building. But that's the stuff that. That's me and you in business together and the business has gone very poor and we broker a deal, you know. I'm letting it. Yeah, yeah. And and, and the deal is, yeah, we're going to have you, Steve. We want the business, but, uh, but we, but we don't want Liam, you know, and therefore we're not going to, we're not going to buy the greater good and, and invite you on as a shareholding director. So you need to make that happen. Now, now. I would not have done that. He's financially, he's financially okay. You know, we weren't horrible about it, but he possibly would now. But at the time, he, you know, he probably felt that he was wrongly, wrongly dealt with, but he wasn't capable of the business growth in where we were taking it. Okay. And that's really what happened. So suddenly... We are now a multi-site business turning over, I don't know, 40, 45 million in 2007, okay. 2008. That's hard work. I think it, again, it... Running two sites is hard work. I, I bet think. it is. I mean, because your operational role then was across the both sites. Mm. And you were operations of all? We had fudgy sort of titles, but yeah, pretty much. Um, operation and sales or just sales or, or just Commercial. Operation? So you all the commercial side, so you just did everything. Yeah. 
Not but running two it. sites is very, very difficult. It's a very difficult thing. Yeah, because one, you're not at. It's at not any that. one time. It's not that. No? It's the financials. Because there are things that, there are things that, um, um, uh, example. Um, I know you like cars, so I'll use this as an example. So um, a BMW garage in, um, in Lincoln, in sleepy little Lincoln, versus a BMW garage on Park Lane, the fixed costs of Park Lane are far more than the fixed costs of Lincoln, yet the sales price of the car at either garage is identical. BMW do not allow Park Lane BMW to put a £3,000 premium on a 5 Series BMW, despite the fact that their fixed costs are far greater. So therefore their margins are worse, but it's not their fault. It's because they need to have a location in London. You run two different sites and your cost base is very different, but your selling price, because you're in the same market, is exactly the same. Therefore, multi-site operations are very, very difficult. You know, salaries combine, are different. So, the, is, is, was there like a, a parent operation that combined the income of all, or did, were they run as separate sites? Or we structured it in a way that we ran them as separate sites, but then we also created a holding company. Yeah. So each of the sites paid a fee and a dividend to the holding company. So we, at any one time, we could see what the true performance of the sites That's were. What- um, the rest is the rest I can condense into five minutes really okay. we then we then so let me just circle back to the theme the theme of this about me is an inquisitive guy who was sponge like that always wanted to dismantle things physically mentally and understand how things worked I've now had failure I'm never going to do that again. You know, most people, you don't get measured by your failures, but my God, you need some failures to realise the pain, to make sure you're never going to go there again. Mm. Suddenly, we are a very large business in the food packaging, you know, um, with business partners. Um, And in 2014... We're just growing the business. We're doing really well. We're very profitable. We're bolting on. We're now manufacturing our own film. We're not buying in. We're extruding it ourselves. We've got our own design studio. We're part making some of our own tooling. We're a proper integrated business with a very, very good reputation. We didn't want to buy him out because the value of the business was too great and I was I was tired of borrowing money at that point and growing and, you know, so we decided to sell the business. So you've let, where you mentioned there, just, I mean, again, from a, from a lender's perspective and a, and a broker's perspective, realistically over time, you've leveraged other people's money on a repeat basis to build the business up to where you've done. Have you purchased machinery or like cash flow? Like, have you ever used any? So it sounds like you've used other people's money quite a bit or is that extensively okay extensively do you think you could have done it without it no way 
No way. Okay. Why are you smiling? Well, because you industry, wanted me to say that, didn't no, you? Because, no, because the industry that I work in, right? The world has got this terminology against debt. Debt is seen as bad because we have this idea of debt being the commercial, uh, the, not the, the non-commercial version, it's the retail version of credit card, filled up, going to fucking Spain, waxing it, coming back, and then your own income has got to qualify that debt. But with a business, if you're taking 500 grand bringing it into the company and then turning that into 2.2, that's a cash flowing exercise. Like one of the manufacturing firms I worked with, right? I got him a 500K loan. I got him two facilities, one of two, two of 250. Um, and he initially came in for 250, right? But the, the, the beauty of it was we got two approvals and he was like, yeah, okay, I'll take them. He, he combined that. So he had one monthly cost. And what he did was, is he took, 125 grand went out to his suppliers, his creditors. He purchased his materials, his raw materials in much vaster quantities than he ever would. Brought that all in and he saved 25% in margin on just, just that one exercise, right? Which mitigated all of his interest. So then he's got uh, another 375K to drive into the marketing, drive into the business, drive into the growth, the staff and stuff like that. And to me, when you say you couldn't have done it and extensively, I know when my thinking around the industry that I'm in is correct because it, it, it just works I like think, that. I think, uh, I, I know you didn't give me a brief for this, but I had a rough idea of what you wanted. And this was what you want, what you want to tap into is, is, you know, an, an entrepreneurial's way of thinking and how they've grown or exited their business. And so I've tried to give you, although I've rambled on a lot, yeah, it's, been, it's been quite a broad brush to show you how I work and what I've sacrificed and how I've done it. I could easily do another podcast with you on the financials behind it, which might be more interesting for another day. And I'm we happy can have to do day. that. Yeah, sure. Now, what I will say to you is an answer to your question, because I saw you smiling, because clearly I know why you, 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 you wanted me to say that. Um, we I didn't want you to say it for my benefit. No, I know. The no, answer no, 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 was... No. I, I didn't mean... It, I, it qualified my... I didn't mean, I didn't, I didn't mean you've, sure. you've given me a pre-read. And, <laughs> yeah. and please, Make please, sure you say <laughs> No, I didn't mean that. But I, but I, I know you well enough, and I know what you, what you do, you know, for, for your... For your, for your for your main work and your main income. And I know what your, you know, your passions are in, in growing that side of things, you know, and it, it's, there is no doubt, absolutely no doubt that our income, um, our income stream in our business was leveraged without question. And it was leveraged through debt. It has, we had no choice but to do that. And I loved doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, thankfully our balance sheet was strong but our debt profile was huge. We serviced the debt without any problem at all. Um, but on an average over the last 10 years, I would say our average capex was about a million pound a year. Right. And of that million, 750 was funded. 250 was self-funded out of working capital three quarters of it, three quarters of all of our CapEx was funded. You see, this is what I think 
but sometimes businesses get and get, we were prostitutes we'd borrow from anywhere really yeah did you use invoice finance or anything we absolutely used invoice financing yeah not factoring yeah. but cid cid confidential yeah, yeah invoice discount so so just so you know <laughs> sorry yeah <laughs> Confidential invoice discounting. As opposed to CID. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Didn't mean it. Um, Yeah, we absolutely used it. But we only used it, um, you obviously know how it works, and your fees are commensurate on how much of your debtor's book you borrowed. Mm. We only borrowed up to 70% of our debtor's book. Sure, yeah, yeah. And the reason we only borrowed up to 70% of our debtor's book, because 99% of our debtor's book was blue chip. Was retailers, and, yeah, and there's the, the the problem with the blue chips is that um, when I see this in any other industry, but we but we used it and we used it all the time. Well, it's done against them, isn't it? Not necessarily against you. These these invoice finance lines, in some I don't respects. know. I don't know why people. I don't know why people wouldn't. You know the fact that you know the fact that you know we were invoicing north of five million a month. You know, in direct... You wait in 60 days or 90 days for that, you? you? know, 70% of 5 million. If my finance director wanted 70, 70% of 5 million, he can have it every 30 days. You know, it's a wonder he did any work. <laughs> Let me just make a note of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we then... Um, we then sold the business. Now, when you, when you sold the business... How was that structured? Was it a larger entity that bought the company or was there, um, was it an MBO or was it, how was it? Because we were too big for an MBO. Okay. You know, an an MBO wouldn't have worked. Um, So we had advisors, a company called Baker Tilly. Some of the details, I'd rather not go into the detail, but I'll go into the process. The process is, you know, um, teasers go out. Um, IMs go out, information memorandums, you then hone it down. We honed it down to three people. Um, we had what they call a beauty parade. So the beauty parade was in our advisor's office, which happens to be in Bristol. So we present to the three different people that want to buy us. At the same time? No. Yeah, you can't have them in the same room, can you? No, uh, each one had a two-day window. So it was done over six days. Um... One of them was a privately owned French company um, and the other two were um, American private equity backed businesses who got into a bit of a bidding war for us. Wow. Lucky. That's a nice position to be in, isn't it? Because and we you're s- watching the figure go up and up and up. And we sold to American private equity um, of which the three of us, four of us, were given a token role in the business. The sale process is brutal. Did you still get paid from your token role? So you had a, effectively an employed status in that? The, the selling a business is brutal. You know, their, their job is to insult you, question why you've done this. It's like buying or selling a car, isn't it? They want it's, to kick the tyres and they want to scratch your ears, dents. It's yeah. brutal. Yeah. But your advisors tell you it's going to be brutal and they, they veneer you, they protect you from that. But... So, so we have to present, you know, um, and it's difficult, you know, it's hard work. Now we were selling, you know, a well-funded profitable business. So it wasn't a distressed business. So we were still in control. We didn't have to go through it Mm -hmm. anyway. In the end, yes. So we all had token roles. We were paid. 
paid a salary. Um, what was the value of the business when they agreed to sell it, if you don't mind my asking, or is that a confidential figure? Uh, it, yeah, it's confidential because sure. of NDAs. Okay. But we sold it on, a, on, a, on, a, on an EBITDA multiple. Do you know what that means? Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you you yeah. looked at me as if you wanted me to say yeah. more. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Right. Like, yeah. What's yeah. The, no, so yeah. I understand EBITDA and, you know, the, the model for our business at some point is once EBITDA okay. reaches well, a certain we, figure, we get a different multiple because ours is version of tech. Okay. So we, we sold on adjusted EBITDA, which basically means they allowed us to take all of our remunerations out of the, out of, out of the, um, the P&L and the balance sheet and re-add it back into EBITDA. Although they were right. going to employ us, they, so we then got a multiple of that. So we got a very high, I don't know what manufacturing gets now, 9 10% multiple, do they? Yeah, 9, 9, 9 or 10%. As a multiple. Oh, yeah, okay. No, sorry, not percent, 9 10x, or 10, 10 10 times, yeah, yeah. I don't know what 10, it is now. 10x. And, and, and what is it now? Have been- N- Lovely. North of four and a half mil. So then you've got it, the quick maths. So we that. did all right. It's a lot. Yeah. It's yeah. A, I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. It, it's. It, it, I mean, it, to, to, and, and I'll say this. It's a lot. I'll say this to it's, you. It's a lot. Uh, yeah, at that point, at that point, there were two, there were two higher shareholders than me and the other guy. You know, but but it was still a, it was still a lot. So anyway, it's like so so I then. I then, so the others buggered off fairly quickly and I stayed for three years because I wanted to work for private equity. And uh, did you do lots of learning from there as well? It's horrible. Is it? Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So it's horrible. All in all. They're only interested in cash. Yeah. Well, that's what equity is. Isn't and, it, it, and, it, and, and they just destroy businesses yeah. because there's, there's quick ways to generate cash. One of them is salary. So therefore, salary culls generates cash quickly. So therefore, you know, if, you've, if you're employing 400 people, you know, they'll get rid of 100 because yeah. it gives them cash. But it means the 300 that are left have got to work Twice one and a third yeah. times as hard. So therefore, it creates unrest. The other way to, get rid of, the other way to, to generate cash is they'll get rid of your finished goods stock and your raw material stock because that's cash. So get rid of that. But of course, your service levels are then appalling because you can't supply customers at finished goods stock because you don't have any. Mm. So suddenly your service levels start dropping, so you start losing business. It is ruthless. It's horrible. So that's when I left. Yeah, bye, thanks. So um, to sort of summarise, um, first of all, just thank you for the, the depth of conversation. Um, I think it, it, I knew it was going to be a great conversation to the degree of depth that we've managed to reach here we've never managed to go that deep before because me and you will sit and we'll end up because we can go on a tangent and we'll just end up on some conversations you've let me you've let me talk which is great and i apologize because i felt that i've talked too much you're being interviewed it's what you're here for okay okay it's a conversation about you okay we've we've reached on me a few times but this is a conversation about you because ultimately the real roadmap podcast is about me learning from you and sharing that information with the world because that is where the value is. This is just me being vulnerable and being willing and open enough to say, I'm ready to learn. Um, And in that vein, if there is three pieces of information, taking that you know me out of it, if you were to to, to bottle three traits that you would say, 
work on these and this will directly impact your business or your capacity to grow a business. What would those three things be? If you were talking to Steve 20 years ago. Uh, first one's easy. Um, um, every decision you make, make for the good of the business, not you. Sounds obvious. So many people don't do it. Mm-hmm. If you're faced with a tough decision, make it for the good of the business. Forget about you. Take you out of that decision. Take you out of it totally. Make yourself, the, every tough decision, focus on, is this the right decision for the business? Comes into, it really comes into its own if, if you're not sure whether to sack somebody, make redundant whatever, you know, because it's a horrible, painful thing. Yeah. Remove yourself and go, if I got rid of it, is it, forget per, is it the right thing for the business? It makes your decision so much easier when you think like that. Okay. That's the first thing. Second thing, it's much harder. Make yourself, and, and you'll, you'll struggle with this, but it's still sound advice. Um, make yourself financially independent from your business as quick as you can. So you're not reliant on the business paying your mortgage. You know, you've got enough accumulated wealth out of the business that you're financially independent from your business because you'll make far better decisions for the business. If, you're, if every decision you make for the business is because you need the money for that, you make poor decisions. Okay. And, and the third one is just ruthless dedication. Mm. Just hard work dedication. You'll go grey. Yeah. <laughs> that happened for you ages ago, didn't it? Exactly. One thing I want to touch on, um, just before we finish, wrap this up, because I'm aware we've been over two hours. Cars. Yeah. It, <laughs> the one thing that I always remember is Steve Pullen, you would come round when we were kids and you would bring us a card with a Virgin voucher in it. Yeah. And you would always turn up, you would hear you come in and it'd always be a Lambo. And the one Lambo I remember <laughs> is the one where you had silver stitched into the seats. Yeah. What was your biggest and greatest external achievement that you created that from all of the graft, all of the effort, all of the energy that you paid in, what was the one time you got in that car or what was the one experience you got in and you did and you went, <laughs> worth every second. Was there a moment like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, things like Lamborghinis can, you know, you can take them away from me, not interested. You know, that's a fading memory. I, I probably enjoyed it at the time, but irrelevant. Um, but I suppose the first, the first seminal moment, you know, of, of, of success was cars. Um, and it was the first time that I bought what I considered to be a proper, proper car, which was a 911 Porsche. I remember it. And I, it was blue and I was 30. <clears throat> and I bought it from Porsche Reading. And I taxied down and I had, I had the playlist CD that I'd, that I'd burnt <laughs> the night before. That Burning I, a CD, these lot won't understand that these know, days. It wasn't even that long ago. That's, that's what I. That's what I had. Wow. You know, because you know, because it was my first proper car. The rest was sort of just incremental, which sounds really flash. But don't get me wrong. Every every bell and whistle, every car watch, 
you know, that sort of thing, I still get excitement in getting it. If you don't get excitement, you shouldn't be spending the money, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't mind admitting that. But the very first one was the Porsche, yeah. Amazing. Steve, I can't thank you enough for coming off. It was a bit of an emergency for me. Um, I'm so grateful that you you filled the slot. Um, we've got some really amazing interviews lined up with some fantastic entrepreneurs from all different types of industries. So 